Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Sarah Bramal Ramos, and I am one of the hosts of the channel. And I recently spoke with Rachel Silverstein about her new book, A Fashionable Century, Textile, Artistry, and Commerce in the Late Qing. This came out with the University of Washington Press in 2020. This book is, as the title suggests, all about fashion in the late Qing. And Rachel makes the case here, first of all, that the late Qing had fashion, and more importantly, that women were both producers and consumers in the commercial fashion industry of this period. Using textual sources like gazetteers, novels, pawn shop texts, and pattern books, as well as material objects, Rachel explores what made Qing fashion different from that of the Ming, the conservative rhetoric and moral discourses that accompanied new fashions, and the commercial expansion and formation of commercial dress and handicraft industries. And this is a book that does a number of things, but I just want to highlight a few. This book speaks really powerfully to the power of narratives, in particular museum narratives, as Rachel interrogates and unpacks throughout this book how museum narratives, collection practices, and collection narratives shape and, you know, shaped in the past and continue to shape today how we think about Qing fashion, or indeed how we think of the Qing as a fashionless period in Chinese history. This is a book that also shows how important commercialization was to the Qing in a really uh, visceral and real way. It explores how commercialization led to the formation of networks of urban guilds, commercial workshops, and subcontracted female workers in particular. I just want to highlight here that this book really uh, powerfully unpacks the interaction between commerce, fashion, and print. This is one of my absolute favorite parts of this book. Um, It details, just to pick up on one example, how pattern books allowed for the spread of fashionable motifs and urban designs, and then in turn how many of these motifs and designs interacted themselves with print culture and ideas of literacy. And finally, the last thing I want to stress is that this is a really beautiful book. And I know this is a podcast, but truly, this is a book that is a pleasure to look at. You really need to get your hands on this one, not just to read it, even though you definitely should, but also so you can just look at it. It contains so much visual material. There are numerous paintings, xylographic prints, and so, so many photographs in this one. Uh, Photographs of robes, of silks, of jackets, of trimmings, and women wearing all of these items. And while we touch on some of these objects and images in our conversation, we really just scratch the surface of the richness contained in each chapter of this book. So with this, I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Rachel that follows, and I hope that you enjoy reading and looking at this book as much as I did when you seek it out. I'm here today with Rachel Silverstein to talk about her new book, A Fashionable Century, Textile Artistry and Commerce in the Late Qing. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel, and thank you so much for finding the time 
in what I am sure is a pretty strange semester to talk with me today. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's great to be here. Great. So, Rachel, could, uh, you know, to begin, could we start with your beginning? How did you come to be a historian of early modern China and a historian of visual and material culture more specifically? Sure. So I have a slightly circuitous um, route to becoming a historian of Chinese dress and textiles. Um, I first went to China. I hadn't studied Chinese in a university. I went there after university in um, in the year 2000 to take up a position as an English teacher in Xi'an Foreign Languages University. Um, and so that year I taught 200 first year students um, and I lived on campus while studying Chinese myself. And then the following year I enrolled at the same university as a student of Chinese. And so I had grown up in London, I'd come directly from London, and that was the year China actually joined the WTO in 2001. So when I left to go to China, there was a lot of talk about cheap Chinese manufacturing in, in um, clothing and textiles. It was a kind of negative view of, of made in China. And so I went to Xi'an and it was obvious that textiles were very much part of the local economy, um, but it was quite different to that impression of cheap Chinese manufacturing, particularly, of course, in museums and in temples where I used to visit. And, and there was this obvious history of thousands of years of production of beautiful, beautiful fabrics. Um, and then there was also an, another place where I used to visit a lot, which was this big textiles market. It was like this huge square building filled with cotton sellers and brocade sellers and gauze sellers. And I used to spend a lot of time there. So all of this left me with this very, this big interest in China's textile history. And when I returned to London for graduate study first um, for my master's at the School of Oriental and African Studies, and then later the PhD at the University of Oxford, this idea of textile specialities was, was kind of foremost in my mind. So that was my route into academic study of, of Chinese textiles. Great, but with, with that, I mean, I'm interested to hear you say that you know the you know China and Chinese manufacturing was really what got you into this because of course manufacturing and you know the commercial side is very much you know alive and well in this book, uh, but you know when you were talking about it, I wouldn't have been surprised if your story had ended with you studying China today, modern China, and this is really a book about the Qing. So I'm wondering what what brought you to this period? How did you get you know pulled back? Um, into into the Qing in particular. Right. Well, I think, you know, it was really very much the museum. Um, before I started um, my doctoral study, I spent quite a lot of time in Western collections of, of uh, Chinese objects and particularly Chinese dress and textiles. So I interned at the Horniman Museum, which is a fairly small museum in South um, London, that was first put together by a, a Victorian tea merchant. It's a very anthropological um, collection of Chinese objects. And then I also volunteered at the British Museum. And then, of course, once I started the PhD, I spent the first two or three years really studying um, American museum and private collections. And if you've spent any time in museum collections of Chinese objects, you know, the vast majority of the objects are from, from the Qing and particularly the late Qing. Um, so that was really what drew me in and, and, and what interested me so much was the way in which they'd been collected and the way in which they'd been framed. 
Fabulous. So I know we're going to talk a bit about a bit about how these objects have been, you know, collected and framed. But before mm. that, I wonder if we could follow what you were saying there about some of the research that you were able to do in museums and collections, mm. uh, because you you list out a really you know long list in your acknowledgments <laughs> of museums in the United States and China, of course, but also in Canada, France, and the UK that you were able to you know get into and to access in doing the research this book. So could you talk a little bit more about some of the research that you did? And with that, I'm wondering if there's, you know, one collection in particular that was important to you in doing the research um, or even writing for this book. Mm. Um, well, I mean, if you've read my acknowledgements, you'll, you'll probably know that it would be difficult for me to, to choose just one. I mean, I really, I, it was such a great opportunity for me to say thank you, because you, if you work on objects, you are so dependent on, on museums. Um, and I've obviously been very fortunate in being able to study in these amazing collections. I think probably my best memory would be that of the time spent in the Royal Ontario Museum because I spent several months there as the Gerber's um, fellow. And that gave me an opportunity to really delve into a collection in, in a quite different way to other collections. So, so normally, if you, ever, if you want to um, visit a museum collection and study objects, it's, it's typical that you have to choose you know, your kind of top 10 objects, de- depending very much on the museum, of course, and their resources. But you know, maybe you can spend a few days there and you have to choose um, and you rely on searching the catalog. And it's a very different experience to be able to to enter into a collection every single day and really, really delve into it and get to know it in that way. And the ROM has this really fabulously comprehensive um, textile collection. They have a very interesting um, collection of Chinese textiles. So I think that's probably my best memory. Um, but I have lots of other collections which are, are kind of close to my heart. Um, the Rhode Island School of Design, um, where I began teaching, that has a really wonderful teaching collection. So that was also a lot of fun, you know, being able to introduce students to to objects. So so yes, lots of lots of good memories of of studying in in museum collections. Yeah, and for more and for the full complete list see the acknowledgments. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Great. So, I mean, you know, as we've sort of started um, pointing at here, at this, at its most basic level, um, a fashionable century is about clothing and textiles and dress in Qing China. Um, and as a way of getting further into it, I'm hoping we can touch on some of the methodology that the book uses. Because um, you point out in the introduction of this book that when it comes to the study of Chinese fashion, there is a bit of a divide between the object-centered methods of the curator-collector and then the document-based uh, economic or cultural history of you know, university academics. And this book is kind of doing a, a lot of work to sit in the middle and to pull across you know, from both sides. So your book uses textual sources, so gazetteers, novels, pawn shop texts, and pattern books, uh, to name my personal favorite, um, as well as material analysis of garments from a number of different collections, including the ones you just touched on. So could you talk a little bit about why it was important for you to write a book that did cross this divide? And in particular, what did the study of objects, um, you know, the material archive of dress, textiles and embroideries in particular bring to this? Mm. Well, 
So as I said, you know, the starting point for my work was really the museum collection. And having spent all this time in Western museum collections, I began the project with these with these two kind of features of that scholarship that really fascinated me. So if you look at 20th century scholarship of Chinese textiles and dress in, in museums, there are two um, really interesting assumptions. So the first assumption is that Chinese dress should be classified as art. So if you contrast that to, say, Western um, Western uh categories of art and the Western rooms of art. These are filled with paintings or drawings um, and prints, whereas in the Chinese room that the objects might span religious sculpture, porcelain, and, and of course also dress and textiles. And yet, you know, from my reading, even at the early stage of the, of the PhD, it was obvious that dress in Chinese society and Qing dynasty society had never been conceptualized as art. So I was really interested in that kind of categorization that dress was was a form of art. And I wanted to explore its kind of historical contingency, you know, the way in which it had formed. So that was one assumption that I, I, I began by um, wanting to challenge. And then the other assumption was, was really the methodology. So if again, if you look at these classic 20th century accounts of, of Chinese dress, the methodology is really entirely formal. There's this idea that we can know all we want to know about the object just by looking at it, right? That you can look at, that you, you can understand the fabric and the textile technique and especially the auspicious motives and the, and the symbolism and the color, and that can tell you everything. And again, that's, you know, that seemed to me quite different to the way in which Western dress was understood. And, and of course, it it meant that there was a complete absence of historical sources. So I was, I was really just interested in this idea of what you, how you could reinterpret the objects if you read them alongside these historical texts, alongside these kind of voices from the past, which might be able to inform, particularly on ideas around um, production and sales and and con- consumption. Yeah, absolutely. All of which you very much get into, uh, into the book itself. Uh, but picking up on the first part of your answer there um, and, you know, about um, collections um, and the museum. Um, and that to me really resonates with the preface for this book. Um, and I, you know, we don't always talk about prefaces um, in the same way that we do uh, you know, the, the the meat, the body of the book itself. Uh, but in this case, I think it's worth spending a little bit of time on the preface because of the work that it does in setting the book up. And a lot of it echoes your answer there um, because you open with uh, the 1945 exhibition of Chinese clothing and costumes at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And you point out in the preface that, you know, like so many other 20th century museum shows, uh, this show presented Asian dresses, unchanging, essentialized, and dominated by imperial dragon robes and other um, notably male uh, markers of imperial power and status. Um, and you talk about how this, this exhibition sets up this very clear dichotomy, Western dresses, fashion, Asian, Asian dresses, unchanging, and also male. Um, and this is a really fascinating preface to me not only because it you know, touches on the historical processes by which collections of Chinese dress entered Western museums, but also how Chinese dress came to be positioned as fashionless and Chinese women's dress came to be really outside of fashion and collection and scholarship. 
so I wonder if you could talk about this preface and, you know, the story that you tell with it. Mm, absolutely. I'm so glad you asked about that. So the, as I said, so I started off in the museum and I think the more time I spent in the museum, the more I became interested in the history of how Chinese dress came to be collected in the American Museum. You know, I, I kind of, I, 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 I came to find that a very strange occurrence. Um, and so, so much of um, my early work was, was spent researching that history of transfer. And there seemed to me in, in the book that that on the one hand, I kind of I had a kind of moral imperative to include that history. I've always really struggled with the idea that you go to a museum and you can have museum labels which don't tell you anything about how these faraway objects <laughs> came to be inside the museum's display case. And and a lot of times that's a really interesting history um, and a really significant history that that um, creates a lot of interesting issues. So in the original book manuscript, the first chapter was actually a, a history of that process of transfer in the early 20th century and um, the, uh, the, the key players involved. So in particular, it looked at the role of secondhand clothing salesmen and um, female collectors in America as key agents involved in bringing these objects of, Chine of Chinese dress into museum collections. Um, but the original <laughs> manuscript was also quite long. Um, first author monographs tend to have quite stringent word lengths. Um, and the reviewers also felt that by opening with that history, which was, you know, cited in America, they felt that I was kind of taking the reader away from China, from, from Qing Dynasty China at a point where I really wanted to start them off there. So um, we ended up making that first chapter into a standalone article, which has just been published in West 86, um, which is a journal of material culture. And instead, I used the preface um, as a way of offering a, 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 an abbreviated summary of that history. Um, and I did so, you know, not I did so because I, I wanted to establish the importance of that collecting process from the outset, um, not just because I think it's a really fascinating history um, and I liked researching secondhand clothing salesmen, but, but also because, you know, more fundamentally, my argument here is that it's very much the way in which these objects were collected and the ways in which they were framed and interpreted that caused them to be um, situated outside fashion. And commerce, and and my argument was that that those ideas continue to reverberate even today. I'm fascinated that uh, this preface was never really intended to be. Um, <laughs> so, in in sort of uh, in continuing to look under the hood a little bit, because you mentioned that you know the original manuscript was very very long, and that some of it yeah. had to be changed and chopped, and that is. As you might imagine, a story that I've heard many times on this I'm podcast. Sure. <laughs> so, but in continuing to look under the hood a little bit, um, mm -hmm. it's in working, you know, with the manuscript um, and turning it into the book that it, you know exists today. Uh, is there anything else that was sort of um, important? Anything that changed or transformed in that process? Or with that, is there anything else that had to go? I'm just curious about, you know, the under the hood side of, you know, how the book that exists got to be. Yeah, it's, it's always really interesting, isn't it? Um, I don't think there were major, you know, there's no major omissions other than that chain, you know, shifting that first chapter into a standalone article. Um, I would say that 
the the work um, that was done for the Finnish manuscripts was very much to expand the view, um, particularly here of handicraft production. So originally, I started off looking at uh, Suljo as a site much more narrowly, and then um, by the in the Finnish manuscript, I was able to expand that research to thinking about embroidery and um, ribbon production in China more more as a whole, and look and comparing different sites. So comparing particularly. Um, Suzhou and Guangzhou. Um, so I think that was the main thing. There were there were jackets that had to be cut that had amazing narratives that I wasn't able to to look at um, in depth. You know, there I had to be very selective. Um, but that that's the kind of that's the nature of the beast, isn't it? I mean, the if you think about the quantity of research you do and the proportion that makes it into the finished into the finished written objects, it's it, it, it's sadly small. Absolutely, and so all the, the jackets that may that remain, um, which we are hopefully going to get to talk to, because there are some uh, that made the cut. Yeah, uh, but you you mentioned there um, sort of commercial, you know, commercial production, um, mm-hmm. and this sort of very much connects back to the you know the power of museum narratives, um, because especially, and I'm thinking here in chapter three in the book. Uh, where you turn to look at commercially produced textiles. And here in in particular, this is the part where it came through most clearly to me. You point out that most 20th century curators um, have avoided the idea that objects classified as Chinese art were produced by professional workshops, even though most embroidered articles in museums were far more likely to have been been produced commercially uh, rather than in the boudoir uh, so I'm wondering if you could talk directly about this museum silence around, you know, commercially produced textiles and garments in particular. Mm, sure. Well, I mean, I think in general, you know, it is a more general silence in art history, uh, you know, this avoidance of the commercial um, scholars generally and particularly over the 20th century have preferred to think about you know the classic literati artist rather than commercial you know workshops um but in regard to textiles and dress particularly i think this avoidance of the commercial does stem from those original um collectors and those original collecting narratives because if you you know if you look at it it is it is very clear that this collecting is an elite pastime and and i have these these great examples of these you know well to do ladies who who trot off to china to um collects examples of of um, Chinese dress there's a, a lovely example of a chicagoan um collector who was called um, Lucy Calhoun, and she goes to China in, she goes to Beijing in 1912. And she basically writes home to her buddies who are the, they're in this society called the Antiquarians, who are, who are made up of quote marks, socially prominent women. Um, and she <laughs> said, she says, why don't you send me some money and I can buy some Chinese textiles and dress. And that's what they do. And this is, you know, that one of the founding, um, of, amongst the founding objects of the Art Institute of Chicago. So it's this very elite pastime. Um, and there are a number of different you know, points of appeal here as to, to why Chinese dress and um, textiles are appealing. But there's also very clearly coming through from, from, this, from these collecting patterns, this desire for a specific narrative around, um, around the imperial, um, around 
elegant gentlewomen. So, so there's a desire to, to purchase textiles and dress that are either produced in imperial workshops or else produced by these, by these gentlewomen in their boudoir. So it, built into this narrative is this um, avoidance of the commercial. And, and I think part of this is, is also tied into um, collecting patterns in terms, you know, the kind of values around age. So what they desire are is objects from the high Qing or the early Qing, so kind of Kangxi, Qianlong, Yongzheng kind of objects, rather than the late Qing. The late Qing is really problematic for collectors, um, even though ironically, you know, most museum objects uh, do indeed stem from the late Qing. But, but there is this desire for an object that is produced, you know, purely for purely for around ideals of art rather than ideals of profit and commerce. Could you unpack that a little bit, maybe just for listeners who are not so familiar uh, with this period? What is the problem with the late Qing? Uh, if you're a collector, why, why is that um, period so, so tarnished? So, you know, something you really don't want to be associated with? Well, there's this design, there's a, there's a turn to objects to, to, symbolize the this glorious Chinese past. I mean, that's really what seems to fascinate Western um, collectors is this idea of that this lengthy historical Chinese past, the, the role of the court, the role of the emperor, the ritual, all of these ideas. Um, and 19th century China doesn't really have that. I mean, the, the empire is obviously collapsing. Um, it's a time of, of great trouble, of, of numerous natural disasters and fighting and so on. So, so the 19th century is, is not something that collectors really want to think about. They want to think about the, the glorious historical past and the, 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 the dragon robes that, that symbolize that past. Perfect. Thank you for, uh, for again, for people who are not so familiar with this, for sort of putting, uh, for expanding on that. Um, with that, let's expand on, you know, what the book sort of looks at a little bit more. Uh, so here, I'm just going to lightly summarize uh, each chapter. So this book unfolds over five chapters. Uh, the first looks at fashion in the Qing and what really made it distinct from that of the Ming, and in particular, the Qing um, fashion for embellished and trimmed garments. Uh, chapter two looks at the wave of conservative rhetoric and moral discourses that accompany these new fashions. Chapter three touches on, and this is something we've spoken a little bit about already, um, touches on who, who it was that did the embellishings and charting the commercial formation and expansion of commercial dress and handicraft industry. Chapters four and five then form the second half of the book, and these two chapters take on a little bit of a different approach. They look at how the shift to a commercial consumer and environment impacted dress objects in the Qing. So chapter four looks at how narrative images from popular plays and novels ended up on clothing, in large part thanks to printed books like pattern books, again, my personal favorite. Uh, chapter five explores literariness as a fashion trend. That is how the aspirational ideal of literacy uh, was presented through clothing. And really throughout the book, there's sort of, um, you know, it's in, the it's in the title itself. Throughout the book, there is a strong emphasis on the commercial and sort of the commercial world that exists for uh, clothing, the expansion of uh, commercial dress networks. Um, so in thinking about this as being such a central core of the book, um, could you talk a little bit about this? What do we see during this period really happening 
uh, to clothing. Sure. Well, I mean, you, talking, focusing on the producer and, and particularly focusing on the, the networks of producer and the, the formation of groups, so the, 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 these guilds in particular and workshops, allowed me um, allowed me to bring in that angle as a way of explaining the development of the, these changes, in, partic- in particular, of course, this shift towards um, ribbon and trimming embellishment, but, but more fundamentally, the shift towards modular, modular aspects of, of fashion. So easily added um, aspects, the roundels, the, um, the sleeve bands, the collars, um, things that were easy to add and easy to take away. Um, and it allowed me to talk about the networks and the ways in which ideas and imagery might be might have traveled through those networks. Um, and it allowed me to talk about women as producers, which, you know, otherwise it was, it was very hard to get to. It's, it's much harder to talk about women as consumers. Um, and it allowed me a way of, of trying to restore um, female producers to, to this, this picture. Great. And you talked there about, you know, trimmings. Um, And this, I think, really brings us to, you know, we've already talked about the idea how this book dismantles um, the notion of Chinese dress as being fashionless. And this book is also doing a lot of work in terms of how it thinks and presents um, the Qing period. Uh, So you've already talked a little bit about how, you know, the late Qing is not traditionally seen as a period of time of which there is much great fashion. Um, And I think the uh, I'm sure you could probably say the same for the Qing uh, on the whole. And what this book really complicates, I think, is our understanding of what is going on in this period in terms of fashion. And you flesh out what is unique about fashion in the Qing. And this comes down to, as you just said, embellishments, woven rib- ribbons, embroidered borders. Um, and I think it's important to note that these trimmings that you talk about are not just frivolous or inconsequential add-ons. They, you know, they mattered to their uh, wearers, but they also allow you to explore, as you've just said, the commercial handicraft industry um, that opened up around trimmings, an industry that employed uh, female countryside embroiderers. They also allow you to talk about the place of narrative in the Qing. Uh, for many of the garments you look at, use narrative decorative forms. Um, And it also allows you to look at the spread of fashionable motifs and designs beyond commercial centers uh, through, you know, things like pattern books. Um, So there's a lot going on here with trimmings uh, that allows you to talk about commerce, print culture, and, you know, culture more generally. So I'm wondering if there's anything that you want to stress to listeners here about the importance of embellishments in Qing fashion. Mm, Sure. Well, I mean, I think you know, as a number of historians before me have have pointed out, one of the reasons why fashion history um, struggles as a whole with conceptualizing the changes in Chinese dress as being that of fashion is because they don't look like the changes in European fashions. And so speaking generally, there's less emphasis on silhouette and tailoring changes and more on changes around color and fabric and trimming. Um, And so one of the the things that I try to do in the book is is lay out this transition away from previous values of Chinese dress as being very focused on luxury silks and and show how that emphasis really moves over the course of the Qing dynasty. It moves away from the ground fabric towards um, borders and sleeves and collars and so on. And I, you know, I like, I don't want to overstate this change. I think there are also shifts in silhouette, 
But certainly it's possible to say that by the 19th century, the decorative trimming is, is, is one of the major um, factors involved in determining whether a dress object is fashionable or, or not. Um, and so, you know, I think that the reason why these objects have been um, so often ignored is because they are, you know, they, they kind of, they, they fly by very easily. They're easy, easy to be ignored. Um, but actually, when you look at their importance, you, you it allow, as you said, it allowed me to explore their production and show how these handicraft industries come to occupy very sizable industries. It allowed me to show how they became a site for really quite, quite new um subject matter, in particular, these popular dramas, um, and, and also the literati values around poetry um, and literacy. Um, so actually, these objects, even though they are so humble, by focusing on, on, on them, they allowed me to, to explore all these, all these different avenues. Um, so, so for my, you know, my argument was very much that even though they are so humble, they really are, are, are very far-reaching in their importance in, in um, for, for Chinese dress and textile history. I really, you know, we've mentioned, we've talked sort of around um, uh, uh, garments that are trimmed uh, with, uh, with the, with, I'm thinking particularly of the jacket with the stitch poetry on it. This is what is, you know, keeps on coming up on my mind uh, when you were talking about, you know, some of the jackets that weren't included and then some of them that were, that that's the one that sticks to me. And I desperately want to ask about that. Uh, but before that, in thinking about the Qing, um, what is so interesting to me as someone who is interested in the Qing um, is that uh, the trimmings, you talk about trimmings as being something that is sort of appealing um, to women in particular of all ethnicities, uh, which is something that I don't hear very often in thinking about Qing fashion. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, in general, there's not a whole, there are some, but not as extensive as in other parts of the world, perhaps. Um, silhouette changes. And typically when we think of Qing fashion, we think about the different silhouettes that exist for an uh, ethnically Manchu woman and an ethnically um, Han woman. But you talk about trimmings as being in borders, being something that sort of um, that goes beyond, uh, that transcends this a little bit. Um, I wonder if you could talk about how ethnicity sort of works um, here, or maybe a better way of putting that is how trimmings uh, work over uh, ethnic difference here just because this is something that is so central in the Qing and how we think about the Qing. Yeah, exactly. Because they, the fashion, fa objects of dress have been used to try and maintain those strict, you know, those stri that strict mm -hmm. separation of Han and Manchu. And we have this idea that, that you know, they, the Han women wore one type of dress and Manchu women wore another type of dress and never the two shall meet. And, mm -hmm. and actually trimmings really show how this was a fashionable site in which, in which both groups um participate um, and you know I'm able to show side by side these these garments and show that even though they're applying them in slightly different ways and in slightly different combinations but, but you know fundamentally they're both participating in this fashion in the same way and I, th I think my argument is very much that we shouldn't understand this development as as 
you know, kind of just coincidental or just cultural preference, but rather both groups of women are turning to the fashionable trimming because it's an accessible site of fashion. It's something that they can, it's an object that they can buy easily and cheaply. It's an object that allows them to update their their garments and so so be in fashion. And, And it's an object that allows them this site for desirable subject matter. And, you know, you meant, uh, and it is also something that is, you know, of course, quite accessible um, if you're just buying, if you're not buying an entire in a, a garment that has been entirely embroidered, if you're just buying um, a small piece or if you're just buying a pattern, it is, of course, something that is accessible uh, to women beyond the imperial court, beyond mm-hmm. uh, quite elite women. Um, and this gets us to the pattern books that I love so dearly. Um, so I'm <laughs> If I could use this then um, to ask you to talk about pattern books in particular, but, you know, more so than that, uh, the spread, the diffusion of um, the way that uh, women perhaps from non, um, you know, uh, not particularly um, lavish backgrounds were still able uh, to uh, to access um, these these sort of uh, these fashions. Mm, sure. I, I also love the pattern books very much. Um, and, and I think one of the reasons why I did love them was because they they enabled me to show the way in which their development enabled women of a much wider um, social and economic background to participate in fashion. Um, and of course, I was also able to show how through these, particularly the embroidery pattern books, um, ideals around embroidery and, you know, the most, the most, um, admired embroidery forms were able to travel. So particularly the, the ideal of Sujo embroidery and, and Gu style embroidery were able to travel f- f- throughout China. Um, and that was something that was really only evident from, from the pattern books. It's not something that you would see otherwise. Um, and of course, it also enabled me to look at um, imagery and think about the transfer of imagery um, and think about these different mediums for enabling that transfer. So, for example, the paper cutouts showing um, the romance of the Western Chamber in the same, which also appears in the embroidery pattern books and also appears on dress. So it it offers this way of tracing out um, the movement of these these images and ideals through, through textiles. I think the word tracing um, is absolutely appropriate. Um, <laughs> thinking about pattern books as well. Yeah. So thank you for thank you for using that word in particular. Um, so thinking, continuing to think about you know embellished garments. Um, I mentioned that I really wanted to ask you about this, um, but could you describe for listeners who maybe haven't had a chance um, to pick up this book and look at it for themselves? Um, could you describe the the jacket that you talk about, uh, the one with the poetry uh, on it. Could you just describe, you know, what this garment is and really what you're doing with it? Why is this um, garment important in particular here in this book? Sure. It's it's a wonderful garment. It's, it's a garment that comes from the collection of the Royal Ontario Museum, so a, a collection that I spent a lot of time um, with. And it's, it's it's a fascinating garment. It's um, made up of a, the main ground is a patterned silk fabric, which was um, probably made in Nanjing. So it's this classic idea of this valuable um, silk from a silk um, specializing 
city. But the trimmings, uh, which all coordinate, so it's the bottom and side borders and then also the cloud collar, are embroidered with these landscape scenes and they're interspersed with um, poetic sections. And these poetic sections are contain lines that are taken from classic um, Tongue and Song Dynasty poetry. And one of the things that's so interesting about this jacket is that it, in addition to these um, carefully, carefully embroidered um, calligraphic poetic lines, there is uh, a name associated with the trimming, um, and there's also a place recorded, and there's also a year recorded. Um, so, you know, it was a very rich garment um, for me to be able to examine. It, it was particularly rich for being able to examine the, the kind of ideals around literacy in the Qing dynasty period, which of course wasn't something that women of a wide social range could participate in. And yet dress and textiles of this period seem to suggest this, the desirability of, of being able to um, portray oneself as a literate individual. And, and this is something that also comes through with the patent books because so many of the images in these these woodblock printed books do contain titles or they do contain annotations explaining the auspicious um, meaning. So there's this sense in in which um, lit literacy and being able to display the ability to produce poetry and be able to compose poetry and embroider poetry is a very desirable thing in, in late Qing um, dress. And the fact that it appears in fashion in this way is a very new development that, that I think would be easy to miss if one didn't turn to the trimming and, and one didn't focus on it in that way. Indeed, and if one didn't read the trimming, um, yes. <laughs> in this one in particular. Uh, but I, you know, I love that jacket, and I'm, but I'm very conscious of the fact that you know I have plucked out um, an embellished uh, a garment and asked you to talk about it. Uh, but is there one, Rachel, a different, you know, maybe embellished garment um, that you want to sort of highlight uh, for listeners? Um, that is, you know, particularly important or meaningful um, in this book itself. This book is filled, of course, with so many, um, but I'm wondering <laughs> if there's one that you would sort of pluck out, because again, I'm conscious of the fact that <laughs> I asked you to talk about my favorite one. <laughs> well, I think my, my favorite object is actually probably not a garment. It's actually um, a sample book of ribbons, which I discuss in the final chapter that was collected by a French ribbon manufacturer by the name of Jean-Claude Philippe. Isidore Head. And um, Head was a, uh, a French ribbon manufacturer and he travels to China um, in, in the 1840s and he goes to several Chinese cities, including Suzhou and Guangzhou, and he collects these samples of, chi of Chinese ribbons um, to inspire European factories. It's, it's a kind of reminder of the importance of ribbons uh, in, in global trade in this at this juncture. And so he brings back to Leon this album of 268 ribbons that have been made in Guangzhou and Suzhou and Hangzhou. And they contain this enormous range of ribbons. But what made it so useful to me um, 
and the reason why it, it, I'm, I'm so fond of this object is that every single one of the ribbons contains a written label and it's, it's the title of the style. Um, and one of the things I was able to do with this is correlate these, these ribbon styles to descriptions of the period from, um, from 19th century literature and other records. And I think what, what makes it so appealing to me is that this object gives us an insight into the into ribbons from a perspective of the seller. You know, it shows how important it was to name the object, you know, not just as a way of, of being able to keep track of it, but because ultimately being able to assert auspicious value in objects was a really um, was a really critical part of, of commercial value. Um, it shows how merchants utilized the cultural accessibility of auspicious naming in order to create market worth, which is it's very difficult to access otherwise because you know the merchants didn't necessarily write very much about that process so so it's an object I'm really fond of I'm so glad you mentioned it because that would that was you know my second favorite that was the other one but I it was on my list of things to ask Rachel about um, but what I think is so interesting about that example in particular and this goes back you know to the to the jacket embroidered with poetry um, in, you know, in thinking about the overall methodology of the book in moving between um, object and text, these are the, both of the, the, the pieces that we're talking about are uh, pieces that really do that in and of themselves, right? That they sort of, uh, they straddle that divide uh, between uh, text um, and object and more so that straddle, they sort of uh, dissolve it um, in that sense because they very much work uh, between the two, they're not entirely textual objects, and then they're not entirely, um, you know, objects that exist outside of text. Um, mm. Yeah, I maybe that's, that's why I like them so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think you know that's a really um, powerful theme that works again across the book as a whole, both in terms of the methodology and then in terms of these specific um, moments. Mm. And in, you know, we're coming sort of the end of thinking about this book, but is there anything else in this book itself um, that you really want to highlight uh, for listeners in terms of, you know, a particular theme or a particular argument that you really want um, listeners to come away with? Ooh, that's a tough question. Um <laughs> Well, I think that that idea of, of dress as cultural expression is is really important to me, and and that's why, the you know the the fact that I had to cut objects and the fact that I had to be so selective because there are so many wonderful objects, um, both in American. Um, museum collections and Chinese museum collections that very clearly demonstrate the importance of dress as a site for cultural production um, for women. And and if we don't look at dress, I think that that idea of cultural production and contributing to ideas and values around um, around drama and around poetry, it, it's much harder to get at women's contribution otherwise. Um, so that's an important idea to me that we that we should understand dress as a site for cultural production and participation by women. Absolutely. And something that definitely comes through um, strong, particularly strongly um, in this, in the, the second half, chapters four and five of your mm -hmm. book. Um, so thank you for, for highlighting that again. Um, and thank you on the whole for writing, you know, such a beautiful book filled. And I say that be not just because of the pictures, um, 
of which there are many. Um, but that engages um, so wonderfully with you know some of the themes that we've been picking up here. And of course, that speaks to the larger issue um, of collections and collections as having their own histories, uh, which is something that is um, near and dear to my heart. So thank you for you know bringing that through as well. But now that you're finished um, with this book um, and with the article that was initially going to be in this book, um, as you as you started off, you know, as you said at the beginning of this conversation, that that now exists on, you know, it's on its own two feet. Uh, but what are you working on next? What is inspiring you now? Well, my um, new my new book project um, really picks up where the first book ended. So right at the end of the 19th century, at this really interesting moment in global production. So in um, the treaty port cities, um, in places like Shantou and Yentai, um, missionaries introduced these new um, needlework techniques to Chinese women. So they teach them how to do techniques of lace and drawn work. And these are entirely foreign to to Chinese textile history. There's no indigenous history of, of making lace. Um, and they're initially taught as a means of proselytizing. So there's this idea that, you know, come and uh, make lace in our mission workshop and listen while we read the Bible kind of thing. But what happens in a fairly short time, you know, really um, one to two decades by the early 20th century is that merchants come in and they take over these uh, this production of lace and drawn work and they become very major export industries. And so these, it, these industries introduce a, a new um, model of textile handicraft export to China. So when a woman in, say, in Shantou produced a lace tablecloth to be sold in an American department store, she did so using threads and linens that had been um, imported from Europe and Japan. She did so working to a design that had been produced by a, a designer in an American company. And she was largely controlled um, particularly the upper levels by American export companies. So this is clearly a very different model to the model of production that we see in the 19th century and the kind of Canton trade model. And as it's also a model of, of global production that's much more associated with the late 20th century. And so I'm interested in this earlier manifestation, um, what it tells us about the formation of a, of a global fashion industry. And I'm particularly interested in the role of gender and domestic production here. Um, these women are not working in factories. They're not centralized. They they work from home. Um, so how does the, the development of, of gender ideologies that are specific to Republican China really work here to transition embroidery from this pre-modern handicraft to a modern export commodity? That sounds fascinating and such a great, you know, continuation of a lot of the things you talk about here with, with women, uh, with women producers, with, uh, you know, commercialization and, you know, thinking about commercial markets and new markets. And that sounds like a great, fascinating continuation of, you know, but a very different story of the one that you tell here. Yes, I think, you know, the major difference is really where I find the objects. I mean, of course, in terms of textual sources, there's so much more by this period. I mean, you have these amazing Republican um, women's journals and magazines, and you have commercial surveys, and you have all these things that, that are not accessible, not available at all for the Qing dynasty. But if you think about where these objects are collected, these early 20th century lace tablecloths and, and so on, they are 
you know, I mean, either they're not collected or if they are collected, then they enter anthropology collections rather than art. There's no way in which these um, lace tablecloths are seen as art. So that's a, a really distinct change to, to think about. And something that brings us back beautifully then with the power of the museum <laughs> narrative. <laughs> yeah. So we've really come full circle here. We have. Um, but thank you very much, Rachel. I mean, that sounds fascinating. I look, you know, very much forward to hearing more about that um, when, when that uh, book project exists as a fully uh, fledged book. So good luck with that project. Um, and congratulations uh, for this one. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. And again, for taking the time uh, to come on and talk about both of these projects. Thank you. It's been great to talk with you.